they're bad for students. And I don't think anybody is advocating that private loans are good for students other than that they help them go to school. Something that we think a lot about is how we make our ISAs more student friendly. On this episode, I'm joined by Justin Potts, co-founder and CEO of Eventify, a marketplace lending platform for ISAs. Before launching, he and his co-founder Timo spent three months RVing to different colleges across the country. Hear about how that's impacted the product, why they've largely issued the venture route, and where they see tremendous opportunities to grow. Hope you enjoy. So you have been on the road the past few weeks. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been up to? Yeah, so just got back to New York City. We were in Utah for the past week for the Silicon Slopes conference. And so speaking on a panel with Austin Allred from Lambda School and Tonio De Sorrento from Vimo about the future of ISAs and higher education. So why is it that you were included on the panel with these two older, more experienced people in the space? Yeah, I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> but no, I think we've done a lot in kind of the consumer ISA space that not many other companies are doing. And just the nature of me spending all my time on Twitter and evangelizing the movement of, of ISAs in general is, has done a lot for that. And I think if you look at like the ISA space in general, you have the schools that are using ISAs and you have the servicing platforms. So I think it's interesting when you have kind of a broader view of companies that are working on this and, and applying it to different things beyond just tying it to the schools itself or even beyond students and education financing. Yeah, absolutely. And then just to zoom out a little bit, why is Eventify something that you and Timo felt like needed to be built now at this point in time? Yeah, so Tim and I are both recently students. Uh, we met at the University of Oklahoma and we had seen the effect of student loans and what they had had on ourselves and our friends. The student loan crisis is only continuing to grow. We're approaching $2 trillion in student debt outstanding. And so it's a really big problem that people are tackling from the outcomes side, where they're making it easier to repay those student loans or manage your finances after college. But we noticed that nobody was really doing anything on the forefront of actually addressing the problem itself, which is building better, fairer financing. And so I think we're uniquely positioned where we grew up here in the U.S. We know the market. We know the general landscape. And so we can really set up to build a product that we would have wanted to use ourselves. Yeah. So I would imagine that part of that unique experience has guided your thinking and the way that you've built what is definitely a unique product in the market right now. Why did you guys choose to become a marketplace? Why should appear? Yeah. When we think about the broader direction, we're definitely moving towards institutional capital, working with private credit funds or banks or hedge funds. Anytime there's a new asset class, those larger institutional investors are going to want to see some kind of historical performance or data behind it. And so if you can go after the smaller accredited investors or retail investors that are maybe less risk averse than those institutional lenders, you can scale to get up to that volume that they require to actually like invest in a fund and generate valuable data along the way. Not to mention it's often uh, faster to, to just go through uh, traditional marketing channels like ads or referrals within your network, things like that. So it seems like ISAs, job training programs in general have a lot of traction right now. Why have you and Timo chosen to bootstrap this instead of going the, uh, the venture route? So we've done a combination of both. We raised a little under 100K in 2019, and that really helped us get off the ground to go full time, build out that initial part of the platform, get all of our legal and, and regulatory items in order. And then we realized that 
we were spending so much time fundraising that it really took away from the focus that we had on the product and the end consumers. And we realized that if we could go off of savings or, or find alternative employment in the meanwhile and, and work on Eventify as, as we're doing another job, it would allow us to, to move much faster there and not have to deal with uh, investors. So I think that approach was really good for us. I think there's a balance to be had. So we're back full time now on Eventify. And I think the amount that you can get done is obviously more when you're working full time on your startup than it is when you're working two jobs. And I think there's something to be said for the mental capacity and bandwidth that you have on doing either of those. I think something that I've realized Eventify and like working on other projects is that there's no right way to build a company. And I think you see a lot of advice on both sides of it, right? You see the ones that are like, we're not going to take venture capital and you have billion dollar companies that have been built off of that. And then you have ones that say, we're going to raise as much VC as we can. And you have billion dollar companies that have been built off of that. And so I think that's really up to the founders to decide what it is that they value and what's important to them. And also what's unique to their business that isn't taken into consideration when you read some tweet on, on Twitter about how to start a company. So I think both approaches have been really good for us. But yeah, definitely as you're starting to scale, it can be easier to, to do that with investors behind you, um, especially if you're young and have no savings. <laughs> Very fair. And you've gotten some different angels. You also chose to crowdsource part of your fundraising on a platform called Republic. And Last I checked, you guys smashed your goal. You were at like 800% of what you had originally been looking for. You've raised over 200K. Why did you choose to uh, raise on there? Yeah, so we chose to raise on Republic for uh, a few different reasons. The first being, well, the obvious one being I, I used to work at Republic before I started at Divinify. Big fan of the team and, and fan of the product and thought it would be a cool way to give back and continue working together. We also share in the same mission of democratizing access to capital and finance. And so if you think about what Republic is doing, they're making it easy for businesses to raise money that might not have otherwise had that opportunity. So you see that with these traditional startups that are raising, but you also see it with smaller companies that are raising on Republic, whether it's a salsa shop or a cupcake store that maybe don't qualify for a small business loan, aren't going to IPO, so it's unlikely they'll raise venture capital. And so they could use something like a revenue share agreement, very similar to what we're doing with ISAs, where you have students that maybe don't have a credit score, can't find a co-signer and have no savings to pay for school. So we're able to finance them through these alternative financing instruments. And so I think there's a big alignment in what we're building and also the supporters of each company, right? We have over 700 investors that have invested in us to date. And those are people that are excited about investing in alternative assets and maybe higher risk assets like companies. And when you look at the population that's participating on our marketplace, that's a very similar group of people that kind of like this part of the market. Yeah. And then I guess you spoke to this a little bit at the end right there, but you recently launched a marketplace component of Eventify. Why was that something you wanted in addition to these kind of like ETFs and bundles of students that previously investors could opt for? So the marketplace is really exciting. I think we're one of the only, if not the only, consumer ISA platform on the market that has a public marketplace. And before that, we were one of the only ones that had the opportunity to actually invest in, in a fund. So I think it's exciting to be able to provide investors on our platform and in the community more ways to get involved with Eventify. And it was a feature that had been requested for some time. I think we have our criteria that we use in, in selecting students and adding them to those funds. And so allowing investors to build their own portfolio of students and grow the marketplace for human potential, I think is a really interesting experiment, if nothing else. 
And then before we zoom out and go a little deeper on your own background, can you talk a little bit about which side of the marketplace has been trickier to get traction on, students or investors? We're seeing good demand on both sides. It's definitely more demand on the student side. Right now we're focused on nursing students and there are about 300,000 nursing students in the U.S. every year, 70% of which take on student loans. And so that's a huge market for us to tackle. And I think given the nature of ISAs and how much more affordable and accessible they are to that student population, there's definitely a lot of interest uh, from students. And then I think the part of the capital market side that's, that's hard is just that's a new asset class. There's not a lot of data about it. And so not only do you have to convince somebody to make an investment on that platform, you have to convince them that ISAs are actually good and explain what they actually do. And so I think it's been an interesting opportunity to set the best practices in the market and really evangelize the movement and build that early community of adopters. I think as ISAs continue to get more popular, we'll only see that community grow and hopefully we can play an active role in that. Yeah, I think it's very obvious that you guys are positioned well to capture some of that growth in that market. But I felt like before we talk a little bit more about Eventify, we could also Rewind, go back to, I guess, your own background. Can you talk a little bit about growing up in Texas, getting interested in tech? Yeah, so I grew up in a suburb in Dallas, just 30 minutes north of Dallas. My dad and my grandpa both both work in tech, and so I was kind of exposed to that at a young age. My dad would take my sister and I out of school and take us on business trips with them, and so just getting to attend conferences and networking with people at a young age was pretty exciting to me. In middle school, I started teaching myself how to program, started taking online classes, building apps and websites on the weekend with my dad. And eventually in high school, it started getting to where I was building out more full applications, thinking about what market there was for certain products or startups that I could build. And then you went to the University of Oklahoma for a bit? Yeah. So I went to the University of Oklahoma for a year and a half. I was studying management information systems, which is a degree in the business school that had a little bit more of a computer science focus. I spent most of my time at OU attending classes and then working on startups when I had the time or playing around on Twitter and networking with people on there. And so I think the best part about being at OU for me was just finding the community of people that were interested in things that I was interested in. And so I joined an organization called the Center for the Creation of Economic Wealth which was a consulting internship started by a couple McKinsey alums. And essentially we partnered with local small businesses and startups to develop financial models, business models, go-to-market strategies, things like that. And then they had a, a development arm as well. So I did that for a semester on the business analyst side. And then I did another semester on the software engineer side. That's where I ended up meeting my co-founder, Timo, and a ton of other people in that program that I would love to work with or start a company with someday. Definitely a different environment than SF or New York, but I think there's entrepreneurial talent and interest everywhere. And that's a good opportunity to like find that community and and grow there. Yeah. When you and Timo met, were you like, okay, we definitely want to build something together or did it more so evolve organically out of mutual interest and just being friends? I think it evolved somewhat organically. I have a list in my notes app on my phone of like people that I, I want to start a company with or work with someday. And so I remember meeting him a couple times and thinking like definitely somebody that I would want to work with. When we decided to start Eventify, it was maybe a year and a half after I'd left OU and we had kept in touch since then and we'd been jamming on some ideas together. And so I remember when I pitched Eventify, he was like, that sounds really cool. If you need a co-founder, let me know. 
and then just kind of off to the races from there. You guys make for an interesting team just because you each have technical but also business backgrounds. And yet I saw you've also built a lot of Eventify so far with no code tools. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, so I think we have a, a really complementary skill set there. And even though we both have those business and, and tech backgrounds, it's complementary in that Timo's business background is much more on the math and computer science and economic side. And my business background is much more on the marketing and the product design side. And then the engineering backgrounds, he loves the back end stuff and APIs, and I'm much more of a, a front end person. And so I think we work really well in that capacity. When we started Eventify, we started it off coding everything somewhat from scratch. And then as we've kind of refined how we're processing applications and doing qualification and screening and offering terms, I think we decided that using no-code tools allowed us to iterate much more quickly, add things like the marketplace that maybe would have taken months of development that we could get out in just a few weeks. And, and it's been an interesting experiment for us to see what works, what doesn't work, the challenges of scaling something with code versus scaling it with no code, and they, they each come with their own unique sets of challenges. I think in general, I, I like the idea of no code. I think it's hard to build a scalable application with it, with the current tools we have now. And so I think it's best use case. And the one that we're using it for is that initial validation and, and iteration steps. And then once you figure out what you actually need to build, then you can start to solidify some of those components and go from there. From a super biased perspective, just because neither Ash or I are technical, I think no-code tools are awesome just because you get to at least try and prove something out much faster and for cheaper. And that's something that I love about the space in general is like, I think as it applies to us, it's this very kind of niche use case of iterate and then build. But I think like in general, I love the idea of bringing access to more people and helping them start something or get something off the ground. I think the hardest part about building a startup is getting started. And if we can lower that barrier to entry for people, we can increase that rate of entrepreneurship. And so many people have great ideas. It's just, do they have the tools to build those? I mean, that's something I'm excited to, to see with NoCode. Yeah. Do you worry at all that using NoCode tools in the short term is a bit of a sacrifice in the long term? Or do you feel like in general, it would save more time? I think it saves time in that you're less worried about building the wrong thing. If you spend three months coding something, it can be really robust and solid. But if you decide that maybe that was the wrong thing to build or you need to change something, that's another month or two of development that you have to put into that. Whereas in no code, maybe you spend a month doing it and maybe you have to change things two or three times uh, and it ends up taking you three months, but that's still shorter than it would have been if you started coding it from scratch. It also depends on what you're building, right? Like if you're building a fintech company, you probably want to start building out more scalable infrastructure sooner rather than later. If you're building something like Airbnb, and Airbnb is complex, I don't mean to <laughs> devalue what they're building, but if you're building something like Airbnb that's maybe more marketplace or consumer focused, then I think you can afford to take longer on that initial validation and, and early steps of building it in no code and then start building those complicated things later on. Do you guys think of yourselves as a fintech company that's focused on the education space right now, or do you think of yourselves as like in a tech company? Definitely fintech company. Our broad mission is to make financing more accessible um, and, and affordable. And so whether that means we're financing nursing students or whether that means we're financing computer science students or whether it means we're financing somebody to help them get their first house, I think all of those are equally as interesting to us and might be on the roadmap in the future. 
There are some parts that we're building on top of Eventify, like our student success platform that helps students get hired or helps place them into jobs, relocate them, negotiate their salary, things like that, that I think start getting a little bit more ed tech focused on like the career services department. But those are also things that scale beyond just currently enrolled students. Like if you go up to anybody on the street today and ask if I can get you a 10% raise, would you give me 1% of that? And like, yes, absolutely. And so I think building financial tools for broader market more than just students is exciting to us. Yeah. You just named a couple other interesting verticals. What type of market would make a good fit in general for what you guys are building or maybe just ISAs more broadly? I think like nursing students initially are are a pretty solid market and that's where our focus is now. And part of the reason for that is you have uh, very stable employment numbers. You have a fast growing job field. There's actually a shortage of nurses and the field's expected to grow something like 16% over the next five years, like one of the fastest growing job fields in the U.S. You have uh, pretty stable and and predictable salaries and job placement rates uh, by region. And then if you look at schools across the U.S., if you look at Stanford, their CS program versus a community college's CS program, you might have a lot of variance in the effectiveness of that education or their job placement rates or even their salary after graduation. But if you look at nursing programs across the U.S., everything from, you know, Columbia to the University of Oklahoma to community colleges, they have fairly consistent job placement rates and graduation rates among them. And so I think it allows us to tap into this broader market of nursing students and not just focus on the quote unquote top performers at the top schools. And we can really service anybody at any school because the programs are all just that good. Curious to get your take on this idea. Ash and I have been batting around this idea that ISAs compared to like micro grants are kind of like trying to hit for singles and doubles where you're building like a much more sustainable book of business because you know those jobs are going to be in demand, whereas microgrants, a lot of times those people and teams are trying to hit home runs. A lot of them will fail. It's kind of like venture capital, though, where if a few of them do work out, then they're going to return the fund. Is this crazy? Do you agree at all? Disagree at all? What do you think? No, I think there's some truth to that. At the end of the day, we have a target return for our ISAs. So we expect most students to, to pay back and, and deliver investors some return, right? And because we build in various student protections into that, it's capped at their total payback on our current batch of ISAs is capped at two and a half X. And so even if this example gets thrown around all the time, and I don't think it's very realistic, but even if we financed like Elon Musk, and then it was like a 30 year ISA, and we gave them 10K, we would still only get 25K from them. And so I think compared to venture capital, where if you gave Elon Musk 10K, Uh, and then said in 30 years, we'll take whatever that equity is, and you never have to work again, we're still building a financial instrument that's in the best interest of our consumers and investors at the same time, and ensuring that we're not giving students any unfair terms or anything that might be potentially usurious. Yeah. And then we were talking about this a little bit earlier. So you were at Oklahoma, you decided to leave. What did you do next? Why did you want to go to San Francisco? Yeah, so I left OU after a year and a half, decided I wanted to be in more of an entrepreneurial environment, but it seemed like a bad idea to drop out of school without a plan. And so figured if I could just transfer to a school in San Francisco, I could get to network with that community. I could continue to work on my projects and and meet with companies while still continuing my degree. So I transferred to Holt International Business School in San Francisco, was there for a semester. And in that semester, ended up meeting with Ryan Hoover, 
and Nick Abuzaid, who's now at uh, Shrug Capital and was offered a job at Product Hunt. So started doing that. I would like go to class in the morning and then go work at Product Hunt during lunch and then go back to class and then back to Product Hunt after my afternoon classes. And so eventually the semester ended. I was full-time during the summer with them. And then Republic offered me the the lead content marketing role. And so I went and uh, joined them and then started Eventify and now I'm here. Yep. Now you're a member of the Product Hunt Mafia, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them are a little bit more successful than I am so far, but uh, we'll get there. No, it's really impressive. I think just off the top of my head, you have Nick, you have Ryan, obviously still with Product Hunt and now Weekend Fund. You have Ben Tossel, you have Eric Tornberg. I'm sure there are more people that I'm also forgetting, but... I know it's a great career there. Um, definitely lucky to have worked with them. And I think the opportunity to be in proximity to not only all those people, but also the platform itself and all of the startups that we were getting to, to work with, I think was an incredible opportunity. And I remember when I just shut down my last startup and Nick and I were at dinner and he said, we have this open social media position at Product Hunt. Is that something you would ever consider? And I had never worked on a social media position my whole life. I was looking at engineering internships because I had worked at Mozilla for a few years doing engineering. And I, I was like, you got the wrong guy. I don't think uh, that's me. And he said, you know, if you want to be a founder or if you want to go be a VC, the most important skill that you can develop now is your ability to write concisely and think concisely about startups and opportunities. And there's no better role for that than doing it at Product Hunt where you do it 50 times a day. Like, how do you convince a startup's pitch down into a tweet and convey that to to the audience and and get its value out there? So I definitely think it it was valuable. And I think if you looked at my writing before Product Hunt and after Product Hunt, or even the way I think about business opportunities or pitches, I definitely think it's, it's improved. Any highlights or lowlights or unusual stories that stick out in your mind from your experience at Product Hunt and then at Republic? Well, I think the highlights have just been getting exposure to so many different people and companies and ideas. I think that's been incredible. And I owe a lot to where I am today to both of those companies and all the people that I've worked with. I think when you work at a startup, there are always going to be stressful moments or, or periods where there's more work to do than there are people to do it. But I think that comes with with any job, really. And I think what's important to be at a company where you're with those people and working on a product or a problem that you care so much about that you're willing to put in those extra hours and do the extra work. And then was there was there a light bulb moment where you were like, okay, like I have this idea, we need to build it now? Or was it kind of brewing inside your head and then you decided to jump on it together with Timo? It was definitely more exploratory than it was like, hey, we need to build this right now. Eventify started out um, as an idea for like a servicing platform. So building the backend infrastructure for universities or boot camps to manage their own ISA programs, not so much as like a direct lender. And so I think we started off with the idea of like, we like the idea of ISAs in general. What are all the applications of this? What are people doing today? We had this hypothesis that the best way to enter the market would be to go through the universities. And so we started just literally cold emailing and cold calling universities, talking with them. And that was part of why we went on the RV trip is to just literally knock on doors and get their thoughts on the problem and and the potential solution for it. And so I think where we are today has definitely been kind of an evolution of like research and discussion and not so much as like, here's an idea, nobody else is doing it, let's go do it. 
Yeah. Can you talk more about the RV trip? Were there specific parts of the country that you were targeting? Were there particular schools or was it more so like meandering? We, so we planned out 10,000 miles across the U.S. or around the U.S. So we started in San Francisco, went down through like Phoenix and then to Dallas, over to D.C., up the East Coast, and then back West through like Denver and then back to California. I don't know that we had a plan other than just we had a list of universities at every major city we stopped at and just went and and knocked on doors and talked to them. I think our goal was to understand the market and understand there are something like 5,000 universities in the U.S. And if we could get even five of them to say, hey, this is a good idea, we'd be interested in working together, then maybe it's worth exploring more and, and building something out. And so I think it was really just a test to see like, is this idea worth working on? And if not, what are other interesting applications that we can start to think about? Have there been any big wins of late? And what do you think are the largest blockers for Eventify right now? Yeah, I think the big wins have just been anytime we launch a new investment opportunity, you know, we launch the marketplace. I think anytime we get to fund a student, that's a huge win for us. And we're still in the early stages where we know all of our students' names. We try and have a really personal relationship with them. And so I think getting to see the impact from funding a new student, especially ones that are so close to graduation, is really rewarding for both of us. So I have a list of common concerns that people have related to ISAs in general, not necessarily identify. I'm going to throw them out there if it's cool with you and you can uh, give me a take. Let's do it. Okay. So... Transparency. How do you make sure that students understand what it is that they're signing? Because I assume ISAs are legally a little bit complex. Yeah, so we do a lot on the education side. We put out materials like blog posts that explain ISAs or explain the mechanics of ISAs. We have live chat on our site that allows students to, to message us and ask us questions. And I think something surprising that we found is that the idea of ISAs is really intuitive to students, especially those who maybe haven't interacted with a private financial institution before. And if you compare loans that have, you know, interest rates, forbearance options, deferment, so many different terms, and then you just say, hey, make 60 payments and it's going to be 5% of your income. And that's it, right? There's no balance to be paid back. There's no interest. I think it's a really compelling case for the students and it's really easy for them to understand. I think one of the biggest barriers in the ISA space is that education piece, something like 7% of parents and 5% of students are familiar with ISAs. And so getting the word out there and working with other ISA companies to advocate for policy and regulation is definitely a focus for us. So the second one is definitely in line with the first one. It's definitely a hotter take also. ISAs are indentured servitude. Agree or disagree? Well, I think if ISAs are indentured servitude, what are private student loans? Like my goodness, right? They have these insanely high interest rates. They don't take into account the outcomes. A student making 30K is paying the same uh, as a student making 230k you have that fixed balance that you have to pay off there are people still in retirement that are paying it off and they can garnish your wages they, they can send debt collectors after you they're bad for students and i don't think anybody is advocating that private loans are good for students other than that they help them go to school something that we think a lot about is how we make our isas more student friendly and i think that the indentured servitude argument arises when people think about it just because it's income-based repayments. But I think one of those misconceptions is that we have no role in deciding where those students work, how they get those jobs, whether they get a job at all. Obviously, we want them to. We win when they win. But other than 
ensuring that they're making payments if they're making money. We have no control over that. And I think that's the other part too, is that you know the nature of ISAs is that we're successful when our students are successful. With loans, if you lose your job, you're gonna be making payments and the bank doesn't care whether or not you're unemployed. If you're earning money, then we'll take a cut of that. And if you're not earning money, we'll help you find that job and, and earn money. So I think it's just about aligning the incentives between the lenders and the borrowers. Yeah, and you spoke to this a little bit. You guys are going after the private student loan market. What is the distinction between public and private student loans and how big is private student loans specifically? Yeah, so the federal student loans um, are originated from the federal government. Private student loans come from banks like uh, Wells Fargo, SoFi, Common Bond, lenders like that. The federal student loans often have interest rates between 3 to 6%, so much more doable uh, then private student loans and the federal government actually loses money on every federal loan they put out there. So it's just like super unsustainable interest rates for them, but a great deal for students. There's also a cap on federal loans on how much a student can borrow. And so I think it depends on your income level or on your parents' income level. Whereas private student loans, students can borrow, you know, like half a million dollars and just be in debt for, for the rest of their life. I think it's like $110 billion in student loans are originated every year. Only about 10 to 15 billion of that comes from private student lenders. The rest comes from the federal government. Okay, so last common concern, adverse selection. Will only or do only lower performing students or students in majors that theoretically get lower paying jobs apply on Identify? Yeah, I think we avoid a little bit of that with our focus on just nursing students. But when we were major agnostic, we had students apply from everywhere, including Carnegie Mellon to small local community colleges. And you have high performing students at all of those. I think the advantage of ISAs and the reason that you see so many different people apply is just that they're a better, more attractive option to students than, than those private student loans. You know, there's a recent study from Purdue that showed they've issued a thousand ISAs and they showed like no signs of adverse selection there. And it's because the high performing people that know they're gonna get a job there's that criticism that, oh, they might not sign an ISA because they know they're going to be successful. But those are also the same people that are likely hedging the downside and saying, well, you know, there is a chance that I could lose my job and it's a smarter option for me to take this that has built in unemployment insurance. And so I think it, it evens out there and that'll be something that we see more of once there's more data on the market and, and more ISAs originated. Okay, let's, uh, let's move into a few quick fire questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's do it. So what is your relationship to leaders like Jack Dorsey and Brian Chesky? Yeah, and so I think this is an effect of growing up kind of outside the tech spheres where I had people that I would look up to that I would learn from on how to build products or how to build a company or like that inspired me to go out and do something. You know, when you live in a place like San Francisco or New York, a lot of that inspiration and energy comes from the people in the companies around you where you feel like you want to be a part of that and build something. And so I think part of it was just kind of being that self-starter in a smaller community where I derived a lot of my inspiration from leaders in the space that had a lot of material on talks or keynotes or interviews online that I could watch. So I think throughout your life, your career up to this point, you have derived some value from certain communities. And I guess you spoke to this a little bit earlier. Do you think there is space for other in real life communities, kind of like what you found in San Francisco or specifically what college has? Like, is there any way to replicate that? 
I'm really excited about the future of IRL communities. Um, I've been doing a lot of research into those co-living spaces or companies like On Deck, founded by Eric Tornberg and, and David Booth and, and Julian Weiser. I don't know what the ideal solution would be or what the ideal company looks like in that space, but I definitely think there's potential for kind of a curated community of like-minded people that, that are all doing stuff. And I think even smaller groups like The Wing or Ethel's Club are a great example of that and, and the potential for those. Are there any books or podcasts that have had a very acute impact on, on your life? I think reading books about the people or the, the companies I admire has had a pretty big impact on me and just encouraging me to start something or developing the way I think about products or company building you know, How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, which is about Evan Spiegel and Bobby at Snapchat, Wild Ride about Uber, Hatching Twitter feels a little bit more fictional than it does uh, nonfiction, but still a great story. I think a lot of people recommend books like Principles or Sapiens or, or things like that. To me, I find the narratives much more interesting, learning about kind of the story arc of the founders and the companies and thinking about what particular lessons can I derive from those rather than reading how-to guides on, on how to start companies or tips and tricks on, on starting companies. Okay, big, very lofty question. 50 or 60 years from now, what do you want to be known for? I don't think it's far off from what I'm known for today. Definitely, when I'm not working on something, I want to find something to work on. And so I don't think my kind of entrepreneurial side will ever go away. I think it's really just building and working with startups and in whatever capacity I can do that. I think that's a, a good place to be. And Justin, thank you so much. A thousand thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.